I'm Craig Parkinson, and this is the Two Shot Podcast. Pop the kettle on and let's dive in. How the devil are you? Yeah, I know. It's been a few weeks, right? Well, it's, it is what it is. Um, I'm not going to apologise. I've done that too many times. It's so nice to be back. I nearly said it's nice to be back in your ears. That sounds disgusting and wrong. But it is very nice to be back. How are you? How's things? It's getting a bit warmer here in the UK. I'm currently, um, I'm currently in uh, Bristol. I'm just looking out of the window. The sun is shining through. Um, and we're back with a sunny, shiny new episode. And it's a welcome back this week to David Scott, who you may know as uh, the poet Our Kid, who was on the first year, the first year of Two Shot. Um, and he's back to talk about his debut book. It's called Mancunians. Where do we start? Where do I begin? We talk about it, we get into it in the episode. I'm not going to tell you too much about it. I will tell you though, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. If you're aware of Dave's distinct voice, when that sort of uh, comes alive on the pages and it's got contributions from all sorts of brilliant people. Guy Garvey, Stan Chow, uh, badly drawn boy. Who else? Let's have a look. Oh yeah, I've said all those. Loads of brilliant people, <laughs> and not just artists you've heard of. Um, it touches on the IRA bombings of '96, uh, football trouble, education, growing up, South Manchester, North Manchester. It's um, it's a really really interesting story. It's part biography. And part sort of soundbites from other people, I say in our chat, you know, it, it kind of reads like a documentary with talking heads. Um, and that's a thoroughly lovely thing. It comes out available for you to buy on the 24th. That's next Monday. And if you're in Manchester, you can go to one of my favourite bookshops, The Waterstones in Deansgate. That's Thursday the 27th. Dave is going to be in conversation with Jay Motti, uh, talking about the book, reading for the book. And you can buy the book. He'll probably sign the book. It's all about the book. So, yeah, go and do that. Um, but first, to whet your appetite, let's get into it right now with a welcome return. This is the Two Shot Podcast with the lovely Dave Scott. Enjoy, and I'll see you at the end. Dave Scott's lovely to see you, and it's been years. It's been years since you were on the podcast. Yeah, I was actually listening back to, to it uh, the other day, uh, not, not for ego reasons, but just to, to remember how long ago it was. Yeah, I think it was 2017, 2018. It's a long time. Mm, long time ago, and something that we've incorporated since then is this little uh, icebreaker starter. So I'm going to just fire some random questions off. You interpret them however you wish. Um, Scotty, a good film or a good book? Uh, a good book, I'd go for Gregory David Roberts' Shantaram. 
Uh, I picked that up when I was backpacking through India, and um, I think I just made a series out of it actually on, on Apple. But I don't, I don't think mm. it's supposed to be as good as the book, but yeah, absolutely amazing sort of journey uh, through the underworld of India. So that's one of my favourite books of all time, and I'll just go really cliche because I just can't get enough of The Godfather. Like I've seen that film countless times, and still always getting something from it. Uh, Scotty, a Saturday night or a Sunday morning? Ooh, well, I'm trying to stay well-behaved these days. So I'd say a, a Sunday morning, but I do miss... Saturday. Saturday nights tend to roll into Sunday mornings, Craig. They do, they do. <laughs> well, or, or they did, they certainly did. Um, you can go back in time, you can see a band. Who is it? Where is it? When is it? Ooh, you know, I'd, I'd really like to see sort of like Sam Cooke. I think it was Harlem, Harlem, the Harlem Square, was it? The the live album where you can right, start yeah. in New York. It's just, I don't I think that's one of the best live albums of all time. And you'll disagree with me, I know, with uh, Bill Withers at Carnegie Hall. Uh, I will, yeah. Uh, but I mean, the, good. yeah, they're both, they're both seminal albums. But just, yeah, they are, they are. Just that moment in sort of, uh, in America, in, the, in New York and stuff, you can just really feel a sort of sweat and vibe in that club. And uh, I mean, Sam's voice is one of the greatest of all time. Now, we've all dreamt of being on Desert Island Discs, David Scott. Just tell me one of your tracks, one track you're taking to the Desert Island. Um, I'm going to go for the love song from Ennio Morricone's uh, Cinema Paradiso soundtrack. Oh, it's a good choice. Why that? That's going to evoke some emotion. Well, that's that, that's the whole thing, I think. I, I sometimes I'm, a, I'm obviously I'm a huge fan of lyrics and stuff, but I've been I, I mean I've, I love that film uh, to, to no end, but it just it does it evokes enough emotions that you don't need any sort of words and stuff. And I imagine, you know, you're longing for stuff while you're on your desert island. Good opener, Scott. <laughs> good opener. Now Obviously, we're here to talk about uh, your new book, Mancunians. Where do we start? Where do I begin? But where do we start, Scott? What's going on? Where is our kid dead? Is he alive? Has he been put out to pasture? Because since we last spoke, you're on BBC Radio Manchester a lot. You're podcasting. You're now you've written this incredible book, and I tell you what is so refreshing is to is to open your book and not have the first page about the Hacienda, <laughs> which a lot of Manchester books seem to be. So tell me what's going on since we last spoke. I'm sure there's a lot to cover uh, and we'll move on to the book slowly. Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, the I think the, the whole Arcid thing served a purpose um, in getting my name out there and giving me a platform, but it started to feel a little bit, like a uh, rain-soaked Parker, uh, to, to use some imagery. Yeah, but the whole thing behind it was it's supposed to be a little bit of a a parody, you know, in the same way that Steve Coogan did Paul Calf. Mm. Uh, that was the whole idea around it. And the more sort of success I was getting in that, it, it felt like the two worlds were merging. Um, and in many ways, I was sort of losing direction of what I wanted to do as an artist, uh, as, as a writer. Um, and I sort of lost my way and it's, uh, it's, it, was, uh, it was a surreal sort of experience. You sort of feel like it's like bipolar really. And, and you'll know yourself, Craig, from, from being like a, an actor and you sort of get that invested into a character, character. And then I was like, well, who am I? What do I want to do? And I found myself having to follow the path of this like 
tear away that I'd created. I mean, so, some of the stuff was, was biographical, but it just sort of, it was taking me down roads that I didn't necessarily plan my career to go through. But I mean, I'm not looking back with any any regret at all because it, it served a purpose. But uh, yeah, I, I'd say our kid in terms of the, the poetry and stuff is dead. Although I got a reminder two weeks ago that I had agreed to do a gig and forgot <laughs> forgot all about it. So <laughs> he's, uh, he's, he's, he's going to be resurrected for one night um, on Thursday in Stockport. One night only in Stockport. Yep. And how did the broadcasting career start? And how did you, how did you find taking to that? Because it's, it's a very different thing when... You don't have the character there. You're being you and you're talking to thousands of people of an afternoon. Yeah, funnily enough, Craig, it was the weekend. The last time we actually seen each other at Manchester International Festival. So I think we saw each other on the, the Friday and it was a beautiful, beautiful day. Yeah, it was. And, and then I was actually performing at the festival the following night uh, when I was doing the music stuff with our kid. And then um, it was part of the BBC introducing stage. And I think that the heads of uh, Radio Manchester were at the event. And then I got a phone call on the, the Monday morning of, um, she's gone now, but Kate used to, used to run BBC Radio Manchester saying, would you like to come in for an interview? So I just presumed it was off the back of the, uh, the performance. I thought I'd just like to reflect on, on Manchester International Festival. And then she sat down and said, how do you feel about having your own radio show? And, you know, I tried to play it coy. I was like, well, you know, it's not something I've really sort of considered. But in the back of mind, I was like, yes, please just, <laughs> just give me that gig now. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, I really enjoy it. And not so much the, the music, because it's like, oh, obviously playlisted. And there, there is a lot of great tunes on there and stuff. But that's not what I enjoy about it. It's a lot more the the sort of... Being able to tell stories, and I think that's sort of been what my career is about, and I'll share other people's stories. And it just seems like a different medium to do that. And I do two shows on Radio Manchester. Uh, one's a drive show on a Friday, but the one that I'm really passionate about is the Saturday night show, and that's called Upload. And that exists solely as a platform for emerging artists in any any sort of medium. So they can be an actor, a writer, a comedian, uh, poetry, anything. And then I, I have this sort of the honour to share these this great talent on the radio and, and find them a larger audience, because that didn't exist at all when I first started my career, so I've, I've really got, got got behind it as a as an initiative, and it's the, it's the best performing one in the country on the BBC, you know. That's amazing. And was this an idea of yours that you, that you, you took to BBC Radio Manchester? No, I, I wish I did, but it came from someone called Adam Crowther, who works at BBC Bristol. I think it, he was the brainchild behind it. But in terms of the sort of Manchester one that we're doing, it's very different to the others. Other people do like just 15-minute segments in a different show where I've sort of created a whole two-hour show around it. And um, it's more than just sharing their artwork. I also get like a round table. It's like a, in a couple of weeks, I've got Dave Haslam on to come on and I've, I've set him next to a poet. And then you just sort of see this sort of cross-pollination of ideas from different art, you know, from different worlds of art. And just for myself as an artist, I find it really, I find it really fascinating. But then it just sparks off conversations about inspirations, uh, working process and stuff. So it, it's, it's, it's organically grown into something way beyond what it started as. I do love a round table. I love, as you say, the cross-pollination and the different discussions and it just sparks people's uh, imagination and also it takes them back in time if you're talking about personal stories. I think we need to have more of that on the radio because I absolutely love it. Um, Dave, with being on the radio, what, what have you, what did you or have, what have you discovered about yourself as, as a broadcaster and about how much to bring because it's it's quite a, a difficult sort of tightrope to walk about 
I remember when I started this, I was very, very wary of giving anything too personal on the podcast and slowly but surely. And, and, and I know why. I know why, because I never... I, did, I never wanted, and I've, I haven't said this for years, I never wanted this podcast to sort of be about me or it to be any sort of platform for me. So I, I was scared about how I would come across. But slowly as I've got, hopefully, slightly more professional and a bit more comfortable with myself in front of a mic, telling stories and talking a, a little bit about my personal life, um, I think, you know, certainly I think I've become hopefully a more trustworthy and honest broadcaster. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I I think I referred to it the first time we actually did the interview way back when, and you're just a natural, I I think, Craig. I'm not just saying that because we're talking now, but I would say it's like creative counselling and just being able to have that sort of, you're very easy as as an interviewer and you just feel really relaxed. And I think that's what I tried to instill when, when I first started doing the broadcasting. It was it was a strange process really because you've got to learn more about yourself on the job because when I walked in, I thought, oh, it's BBC, I've got to have a, you know, you expect you've got to do this BBC voice. Mm. And then straight away they're like, no, we want you for you. And then you've got to sort of like break down the barriers that you've already built up through a perception that you've had as an outsider in the broadcast world to actually being inside and all the best broadcasters are the ones who sort of sound like themselves rather than trying to imitate others. Like you'll hear people on several radio stations, like they're just trying to, you know, cop- copy somebody else. And I think, you know, I don't know if people class it as an art form. It's definitely, you know, I, I, I think it is. It's definitely sort mm. of a, a skill set that you need to try and be honest and personal with it. But I understand like putting yourself out there or your own story out there in, in a larger audience. I also had to tighten some stuff in on um, on social <laughs> social media. Uh, that was a quick learning curve. Like I can no, yeah. no more sort of political uh, commentary from me. I'm not Gary Lineker. but it is because you can hear you can hear on the radio when people aren't being truthful i think and it it really does ping out and also when people aren't listening if if someone's being interviewed and they're just "Mm -hmm, uh mm -hmm," you know the ancient old sort of stereotype of the, the dj that's you know flicking around his record collection and not actually listening to the guests you can hear it you know yeah and, and i think you need that to, to get the, the better stories from the people that you're interviewing it's uh, you've got to have that investment um and i just think that's it's really rude not to listen to, <laughs> to what, people, mm. what people are, are giving up their time and, and, and part of their experience to you then you have to you have to listen to the to the stories but i know what you mean some people will just have a set questions in front of them written either by themselves or the producer and then they'll just follow that i mean each to their own i don't really want to sort of bash any any other presenters but i I really try to every single interview has to be unique because the person you're interviewing is different to the to the one previously absolutely i totally agree so um how did you find because it's one thing with a mic in front of us and we're just having a conversation now, but when you're in a radio studio, you've got to adhere to uh, news reports, weather reports. There's lots of buttons you're pushing. And it's not like you can go through that in your house before you get there. So I, I presume you're kind of learning on the job with yeah. all of that. <laughs> How did you find that? 
Uh, I, I was a bit uh, daunted at first, to be honest. I thought, oh, I'll have a producer and they'll press all the buttons and all I'll have to do is um, is waffle. And that wasn't the case at all. And you sort of sit behind this thing that's like the Starship Enterprise. And to be honest, once you sort of get your head round that 90% of the buttons you don't really have to use, it's not that difficult a task. Uh, but I enjoy it. Like the, the more sort of fast-paced shows, if I've done like... Um, if, if break, any sort of breaking news has happened or stuff like where you have to deviate between um, different correspondence or go live to X, Y, and Z. I do, I do enjoy that side of the job. Well, it keeps you on your toes as well, doesn't it? Again, you know, uh, a vital, integral part of, of this is, as we've said, is listening. So you've got to be on the ball. Um, so you're, you're good? You're in a happy place where you're at with the work? Um, Work-wise, yeah. I mean, like uh, the BBC are going through some changes at the moment. I'm not too sure how that's going to affect me in the long run. There's still sort of meetings to be had about the the cuts they're doing to local radio, but mm-hmm. uh, fingers crossed, I, I, I'm still working in the BBC in some sort of capacity. I'm doing a podcast series with them as well, which I can't really discuss. Uh, but so it, it's not, you know, it, it's nice to have, I've always found myself for years having creative ideas, but not having anyone to sort of pitch them to, and sort of say, listen to me, and now people are sort of respect what I do and my ideas. So it's it's nice to have that sort of. Could we do this? And then people like negotiate with you. Yeah, well, how about looking at it in this sort of way? And it's just, it's just I'm really proud of being able to have that I've sort of forged that, that part of my career. Well, local radio, I think, is vitally important for the community. You know, I, I was talking to somebody a few weeks ago about. Um, the sad loss of Oldham Coliseum and, you know, it, it brought the community together and people trained there, they went there as children and to take that away removes um, the beating heart of the community. Yeah, um, I mean, I understood, I mean, it was tragic, by the way, uh, Oldham Coliseum, I, was, I had a report there to, on, the, on the last night, um, yeah, it's terrible what what's happening to local arts, but the same in the, in, in the local radio and I understand that the way that the change in it, uh, I think a lot of the frustrations from from the staff and I not only speak for myself as a freelancer it's just the sort of way it's come about because people are listening to content differently nowadays and in the, in the, in sort of listening to more podcasts uh, so I understand that changes need to be made I think a lot of people just got a problem with how it's come about but you know exactly like the way over the past few years the way that we consume television has completely changed you know there's very few television shows now that a premiere in and it's once a week you know succession is one of them that everybody's talking about at the moment it's there it's once a week they're not dropping the box set you know again that's why people they like a podcast i listened to a great one on a drive actually they used to drive back to manchester which was called a very british cult which is a radio four which i highly recommend i probably spoke about it in the intro to this um but people sometimes don't want to consume it altogether. They don't want to supersize their meal. They want the little, the little morsels, the little portions each week. And I think, you know, tuning into a radio show every week, it does that. And for, for anybody that doesn't consume radio the way I do, then uh, I, I, I think they probably should. Yeah, you make, you make a really good point there, though. I think, there's, I think we're on the sort of verge of a, a shifting culture um let, let, let's say a culture diet in some ways because i think more people do enjoy that remember it was that water cooler moment where you said did you watch that last night and if you missed it mm. you know what i mean I, I i think there's we've sort of lost something by being able to devour what we have what we want out of the fridge that is netflix or you know or amazon and i think we just got a little bit complacent and i think some of the content as well because i mean again i don't want to start 
shitting on anybody's anybody's work, but there's a lot of stuff that gets made. You know, you can spend more time on Netflix streaming, looking for something to watch than you can actually invest it to, to, to watch the stuff. Oh, mate, un- absolutely. I mean, I spoke to my son, who's like 12 at the end of May, and I said to him, we were discussing consuming television and what we should watch at the weekend and things like that, as we do. And I said, you know what, I, I think maybe there's just too much. And he said, Dad, you know what? I heart never expected him to agree with me at all. He went, I agree with you. I think there is just too much sometimes. <laughs> I'm kind of, he even said, he went, I feel a bit overwhelmed with all the content. And that's, that's an 11-year-old, almost 12, who that, they just love the screen. They love it all. They want it now, you know? They don't, they don't understand about, you know, going to the video shop and choosing a video on a Friday night. I wouldn't even know what a bloody video is. <laughs> you know, how, how old do I sound right now? No, big up the block, block, uh, hashtag blockbuster massive. I'm, I'm, I'm there with you, Craig. But yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting that the sort of your son who's reaching the age of twelve has that has that viewpoint. Do you think we're we're creating better content because it's easier to make nowadays, or do you think you know back in the day there used to be a lot more sort of you can look at the music industry, sort of tastemakers and stuff, and it's great that anyone can make music, but because it's such an onslaught of any sort of art, do you think that it's some like it's getting diluted? I do. I think. I think there needs to be more quality control. Um, you know, I've said this before. Just, just because we can uh, go to bed and you know make a baby doesn't make us parents. And just because anybody with a mic can make a podcast doesn't mean that they should. You know, I, I think. I think there is. There is too much out there. Obviously, if we're talking about television and films, it's much more difficult to make on a certain level because of budgets. Yeah. But then again, I've seen films certainly over the past uh, 10 to 12 years that, that people have made on their phones with very, very minimal budget and are fantastic. But why? Because the script is good, because the stories are there, because the performances are on point. You know, just because you throw a load of money at something doesn't uh, you know doesn't mean it's going to be we're going to have that water cooler moment or people are going to be buzzing and talking about it because if the quality is not there it's just not there and you can say that across any platform yeah and and all the money that was spent on the mario brothers i was that mightily disappointed when i watched that <laughs> last week you, although it's making a killing mate you can say that exactly you see it can it can be things can get a, an absolute panning from critics like that film did i i haven't seen it my my boy's a little bit too old for that now but you know it's broke all box office records and it's and it's about timing they released that at the optimum time which was the easter holidays the back end of the yep. easter holidays People had been off for a week. They're like, oh, I've done I've done everything in two weeks and a week. What we're going to do? I know we're going to take them to the pictures. Yeah, and I fell for that one as well. <laughs> but, hey, get in line, you and many others, mate. <laughs> so, Dave, let's talk about your new book. It's called Mancunians. Where do we start? Where do I begin? Um how did this come about? Was this something... Because it's been released on Manchester University Press. So is this something, uh, an idea that was brought to you or you took the idea to somewhere else? Uh, it started following a... I was on Clint Boone's Excess Humans of Manchester podcast. Of course you were. Uh, yeah, very good it was too. I enjoyed it. Cheers, man. Uh, during the, the pandemic, 
And then the university press got in touch because during that interview, I mentioned that my sort of frustrations at Manchester just being seen as the Hacienda and we did absolutely nothing else but that. But then I was looking at the, the other bands that came from from the city during my formative years, the likes of Dove's Elbow, uh, Badadron Boy, Iron Clue and, and so on. And they said, would you be interested in writing a book? And it was a little bit, I remember the initial, the initial email because I had to send it to a friend. I said, are these asking me to write a book or asking to use my name so they can write a book? And it was, I was like, what's going on here? Anyway, so it, it went, we had a conversation and then we looked at the the period that um, about ninety seven or ninety six when, when when the bomb happened, yeah. and I, I couldn't believe, and I still to this day, I mean, what are we a week until the book's released, that nobody has written a book about this period in Manchester, like the the turn of the millennium, and the more I started writing a premise and looking at the the sort of different strands uh, of interest that were going on at this city, you've got the beginnings of regeneration. Uh, within Manchester City Centre, you've got the gangs problems in the south. Uh, you've got this new burgeoning creative collective that's happening on Oldham Street before it became this sort of hipsters conclave that it is now. The football clubs were going through huge transitions. You know what I mean? And, and everything just sort of like it's now a huge golden period that nobody's ever discussed in the city. So I was like, I just, you know, you, it just felt like it struck gold. And I don't want to sound like sort of egotistical when I say that, but it's like. I'd, it's a book that I'd like to read because nobody's written it before. It's genuinely a, a thoroughly enjoyable read. And I think what you've hit upon here is you haven't just, as you said, spoken um, from 96 onwards and about all, all those um, events that were happening. It's a personal story as well because it touches, it's part biography, part stories from your life, but also you've got little inputs from lots and lots of different other people, from different walks of life, from, you know, fire fire crews, people who worked in WH Smiths during the IRA bombing, um, you know, musicians, artists from around Manchester. So how did that, or was that easy to sort of sew together? And how, how, how quickly did, did the tone of the book come to you or did it sort of reveal itself as you started working? It's uh, a mixture of both, really. I, I knew I wanted to write it from my point of view initially because I've, it's a lived experience, and I think I mentioned it in the book, um, that Manchester's only ever seen from an outsider's point of view. You only ever get a certain lens on it. So the more I sort of focused on this this idea of one camera, and then I thought I'm a huge um, fan of uh, modernism, so I was the likes of uh, Joyce, uh, Beckett, and just trying to change uh, literature. I tried to do something a little bit different. So I thought, well, it's my first book. Why not? You know, you might as well shoot, take your shot. And I thought I might, I might as try and make it interesting. So I started asking different people if they'd be interested in contributing, and they said yes. And then and the more that people did, it just became this. I, I think I sort of sell it as this collective memoir. Whilst it's my life story in so many ways that you know is the is the main thing that runs through it. But then everybody else says that their their input, and I think through that you get you get a fuller picture of what it was like from from different perspectives as well. And what was really interesting was the more people I interviewed, it took me down tangents and roads I'd never even considered. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I when I, I was like I, I know this, uh, I know what happened during that time. First interview I had with someone, I was like, oh, I never thought about that. Oh, that really mm-hmm. happened. And then and then somebody knows somebody else. And then they'll get involved and go, oh yeah, but you need to speak to this. And it was just, I was sort of growing this organic network of Mancunians and that's where the title came came from really. And I remember I spoke to Andy Hargreaves, who's a drummer in I Am Clute, 
and um, we we got on really well. And they've come a lot of them have become mates in the process, you know, of actually making the book. And they're just everybody was so kind with the time. But then he texted one morning and said, "Oh, um, guy wants to have a chat with you." And I was like, "Guy you?" And it was Guy Garvey. I was like, "All right, yeah." Uh, <laughs> so the next morning, I, I was I was on the blower to to Guy Garvey, and then then Stan Chow got involved. Or, Damon, badly drawn boy, and then you, you got like the people who aren't so much in the in the public eye that were giving up their valuable time, but not just that, the honesty in the and the humor as well. I think that there's a lot of humor mm. in the in, in the book and uh, the anecdotes, um, but it just completely blew me away that it, it it was quite far removed from where my initial idea was, and I'm glad that it didn't stick to to my uh, premise initially. And also, the voices. Because sometimes when I'm reading, I see things, uh, you know, visually, because that's obviously what I do. I think of things, oh, if this was a doc, it reads like a documentary. Do you know what I mean? You can hear, they're so distinct, the, the different voices, as is yours, that just lift off the page. How did you, did you make a short list of people that you wanted to come on? Because, because also, you've got such a... Uh, you know, such a deep well of talent um, across the areas of the arts, no, no, not just the arts, you know, in Manchester. Who, how did you sort of um, get that into a shortlist? Um, I didn't make a shortlist, to be honest, Craig. I, I had a very long list and I fulfilled an interview in, I think, over 102 people. Uh, I think only 33 actually made the book. I mean, I, believe me, I, I could have turned this into like a, a volume one, volume two, volume three with the amount of people that I interviewed, but it was just mm. trying to just keep the stories or the characters that was going to sort of move. I, I think that I wanted the book to move at a pace rather than sort of be quite laborious by repeating the same story. So if there was any sort of people were saying the same thing, but from a, from a different point of view, I, I didn't try to keep to that, but it's just... I don't know. I don't, I'm probably going to upset some people because I've omitted them from from the from the book, and that wasn't intentional. I, I, I blame that on the editors. But I, 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 so I said, right, who do I know that will have an interesting story from uh, for this book? So I started writing one, two, three, and I looked at the themes and I'm like, okay, media. Who do, who do I know in the world of media? Okay, well, I've met John Thompson before. He might he might give me some anecdotes, and then um, and someone knew Phil Mealy, uh, the writer of uh, Early Doors and, and Royal Family, and then. It was more, it, it grew as, as I interviewed people. So it was just, it was, it was in the same way I hope it is for the reader, it was a discovery for me. So with this being personal, it is personal. There's personal stories in there. Did you make a conscious decision to go all out or were you sort of going to keep something back? Because it's, 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 it can be dangerous and it can be a very brave thing to do to sort of bear your soul on the page. Yeah, um, I don't know. I, to be honest, I never really considered it, and I think anything in that I've ever done artistically, it's just I'm always honest with it. I don't, I don't see. I, I might never. I, I looked at it in the sense that I might never ever get to write a book again. So I thought, well, what's the point of me pulling any punches? You know, mm. I, I, I'd rather sort of leave the, the tell the story as it was. And um, I mentioned it. I mentioned it at the end of the book. Um, I make like a note to my younger self because it was hard, you know, like, like not reflecting on certain things that, that have, um, that happened, especially during like losing mates to several different reasons and, uh, stuff that happened to me. And it, it, it 
something happened within me, like it's all like a recurrence of uh, PTSD. And I felt I found myself trying to write this book, juggle life and falling down a huge rabbit hole because I'd come across old photographs when trying to do some research and it just sent my head completely west. I was like, whoa. <laughs> uh, but I thought, yeah, I'd, I'd, rather, I'd rather put it all out there and be honest rather than sort of pull punches. Dave, tell me, did you have a structure when you were for a writing week or a writing day? How, how did you go about it? And did you stick to an office? Did you go, did you go out to write? Did you stay at home? Um, did you set yourself boundaries? Did you say, right, I'm going to get up, I'm going to do nine till two on the book and what comes out comes out? Yeah, uh, I, I wish I did. I, I did quite right. a lot of research before starting the book and listening to other authors say that's their writing process. And I tried several of them. Like I think Hemingway used to go up at six and write till 12 and then, and then drink from one. Uh, that didn't work and that didn't last very, <laughs> didn't last very, <laughs> very long. And then other people try and keep very sort of business hours, nine to five. But the way of my life of being a father of three girls and juggling mm. plates to sort of maintain some form of income, it was a matter of sort of, oh, I've got a free space there, I'll jump in and write it. And then some days I couldn't get anything. It's like, it's weird because when when I'm in the moment, I don't want to be anywhere else. But when it's blank words on the page, I don't want to be here. Do you know, it's like, like it's, it's, it's either, I'm either loving it or really hating, uh, hate, hating the writing process. And were you given, was there a time element with the publishers? Did, did, did you have deadlines? Yeah, they give me sort of deadlines that they'd like to see a, a first draft by a certain date um, and fair play to Manchester University Press, they were a little bit flexible with that because I was relying on uh, certain contributors that I was waiting on to, to finish chapters and I said, well, if I hand it over and you've got half a chapter, there's no, it's no benefit for anybody there and, and they were fine. So I had like, I think, 18 months originally and I think it ended up being two years uh, in, in total. And when you were interviewing all these in, incredible, interesting people, were you, did you give them sort of uh, editorial um, uh, content? When, did you say, look, you can tell me all this stuff, um, but I'll let you see it when it's in print before it goes, in case they wanted to make any edits? Because obviously they're telling personal stories as well. Yeah, I did. I, I said, like, you, you'll get sign-off uh, on any, any, any quotes that, that, that I uh, put out there. And I think uh, there was only one contributor who asked for their quotes back to be read, but everybody else was just... And, I'm, I mean, uh, that was testament to the people that I've interviewed. They were just so... A lot of them were humble in their in their achievements. Uh, they were honest in in the stories that we were telling. I mean, you you only get like little snippets or anecdotes of their lives. But we were we had like two hour, three hour meetings, and sometimes it was like multiple. You know that, that they give me lots of more time to to sit down and and talk about it. So um, yeah, so I mean, I wouldn't want to be the guy who put something to print because someone gave me a quote and I didn't run it past them because I'd be mm. absolutely fuming if that if yeah. the shoe was on the other foot. Of course. I mean, a lo you know, I've spoken to writers before and it seems quite a sort of solitary process. And with this, what, what you're talking to me now about, it seems quite collaborative. Yeah, it, yeah, it was. It really was. And the, 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 the hardest part I found was trying to work out, right, what part of whose interview am I going to, am I going to take? And it was more like putting a, a puzzle together. And I think I mentioned this to you previously when I, was, when I used to do a lot more poetry, is that I never really write in a sort of linear way. I'll come up with a line that I think is quirky and I'll bank that in some sort of library in my head and then something else will come along. And then it's sort of, 
I like it's I always treat stuff like art like a puzzle, you know, trying to find out well, does that go there and that go put more like a piece of architecture really. So obviously when you you know, when you wrote your poetry, yes it was personal, but writing a piece of poetry is very different to putting personal stories down and writing a book. What what were you what were you learning about yourself and about the art of writing a book as you were doing it? Um, that's a great question. Uh, what did I learn about myself? It, Craig, this, this is long been, this has been like the end goal, you know, like I've always wanted to, uh, be a writer that like have a book published and you know, I've done poetry and music and BBC broadcasting. But like I put a post out the other day on, on Instagram, like since the age of like 11 years old, I've, I've wanted to have my name in Waterstones, and do that um so there was a there was I felt a pressure as well you know on that because it's not like I kept looking over my shoulder or looking at all photographs and seeing like uh, young David Scott and I was thinking right, well I've got to fulfill your dreams here I hope you do you do, do you proud and I, 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 I always felt that weight behind me on it but listen I always think you should you should, you should enjoy um whatever you're making and I certainly did that uh I I don't know. It's a difficult question, really. What, what did I learn about the process of writing? Because I've, 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 like I've studied writing at university. Um, I don't know. I want to do it again. But, I want to do it. That, that's oh, probably do. the main thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. Like if, if I'm in negotiations at the moment with a couple of publishers uh, for for a second book um, amongst other projects, but it's like it, it felt everything that I'd done to a certain stage. Like I did the poetry that led to the music. The music led to the uh, broadcasting. Broadcasting led me to having that interview probably with uh, Clint Boone. And then everything's sort of been a stepping stone towards this point. So I'm hoping now that, I mean, this is where I'd really like my my career to go, um, writing writing books. And then I've, I've also written a, a stage play that I want to try and get doing next year. Fantastic. I mean, it's all firing on all cylinders at the moment, Dave. Now you mentioned Waterstones there before, and I know that, I think it's Thursday the 27th. Yep. You're going to be at my favourite Waterstones, which is on Dean's Gap. I'm sure it's many favourites to many people. How are you feeling about getting out there in front of an audience and, uh, you know, f- for all intents and purposes, flogging your book? Yeah. I always think creating something's a lot more fun than than the selling of something. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, doing yeah, all yeah. the interviews and stuff. I'd, I'd rather, like, my publishers want me to put more posts out, and I was like, listen, I don't want to ram it down people's throats and stuff, but you've got to play the game, haven't you, I suppose? Mm-hmm. But my biggest fear for, for returning to Waterstones next week is if they've still got my um, my picture on CCTV when I used to wag school and steal books from there, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> you've come full circle. Yes. Dave, full circle. <laughs> um Dave, is there a is there a little piece that you'd like to tempt uh, our lovely audiences with and um, and read from the book? I'd love to hear something. Yes. Um, okay, so this is from the uh, conclusion. Mancunians are not a homogenized people. The people and place do not blend into one thing. Manchester is not soup. We don't talk with one tongue. We don't sing the same songs. Our colours and creeds change like door numbers on a street. The actions of one person don't tell all our tales. We are panhandlers stopping cars for change under the Mancunian way. Developers truffling out a cheap property. Parents mourning the loss of their child to mindless violence. Imams ringing out the morning prayers at mosque. Families heading to Shabbat in, in sheet mill. 
greengrocers stacking yams on Hyde Road, newly arrived migrants seeking refuge. We are addicts selling stolen gear from the supermarket at the local pub, old-timers propping up the bars, clubbers queuing in lines for lines and troubled teens facing difficult decisions. We are parades that celebrate our sexuality. We are protesters fighting for acceptance. We are media types living in multi-million pound apartments, elderly people being moved out of their homes in the name of progression. We are dynamic corporation leaders in glass skyscrapers where homeless people see their reflection in the streets outside. We are hipster restaurateurs culturally appropriating ethnic food and emerging artists trying to carve a career whilst the civic nostalgia shackles them to the past. There are as many obstacles as there are opportunities. A contrast between conflict and community. The whole may be greater than the parts, but it is exactly because the parts are distinctly different that makes this place what it is. Many worlds coexisting within a 44.6 square mile radius. We are the walking stories that make up a complex and compelling canvas. It is only when we look at the warts as well as its wonder can we solve the underlying problems overlooked as we celebrate our success. We are a multitude, people put together with the consideration of a four-year-old with a paintbrush. We are colourful, dull, irregular, sharp, dangerous and ill-fitting pieces that on the face of it shouldn't be placed alongside each other but somehow manage to accompany one another as part of a larger pattern. To focus on a few is to skew the view, to miss the mechanics, to not take in the patchwork of the tapestry. We don't do things differently here. We live differently here. Manchester is a mosaic. Oh, lovely. <laughs> I feel really lucky that because I watched your face as you were reading that. And <laughs> there was a specific moment where you just gave a little wry smile and your eyes just curled up. And I, I could sense that you really enjoyed, that was a moment you really enjoyed writing that. So, Dave, are there any tickets left for the Waterstones uh, reading next week? There are, uh, I think there's 10 left, Craig. Right, okay, so that's Thursday 27th at Waterstones. You know I don't really do lots of plugs, but for you, I certainly shall, because I'm thoroughly enjoying this book. It's uh, called Mancunians, Where Do We Start, Where Do I Begin by David Scott. And the release, the publishing release date is... Comes out next uh, Monday. Next Monday, go and grab a copy and go and say hello to Dave Scott if you're in Waterstones. Are you doing any more uh, book? Um, are you doing a little book tour? Yeah, they talk about it. I think the publishers are, are in negotiations, so I'm, I'm, I'm at their mercy in terms of where they want to uh, pimp me out. <laughs> well, enjoy being pimped out. It's a thoroughly <laughs> fantastic read, Dave. Um, and thanks so much for coming back on after all these years and lovely to see your face. Uh, wonderful as always, Craig. Take care, my brother. Lots of love. And another episode is done. Great to have Dave back on. So chuffed that he's written this book. Um, I really, really hope you enjoyed that episode. And uh, and if uh, if it floats your boat, why don't you go get a copy, give it a read. Um, the one thing I didn't ask him, oh, I should have asked him, um, is if he's doing uh, a, an audio book. So you could always just stick it on on the commute, on the dog walk, on the treadmill, wherever you are, probably like you're listening to this now. Um, are we going to be back next week? Yes, we are. Uh, I'm just in talks with somebody very interesting who we don't know each other very well, but every time we meet, 
It's lovely, and I've no doubt it's going to be a fantastic chat. I'm not going to say who it is. I'm not going to do that. Uh, in the meantime, um, uh, yeah, hold your horses. It'll be within a few weeks, no doubt. Um, do I have anything else to tell you? Oh, I mentioned it on this podcast, I think. I very much enjoyed um, a new podcast called A Very British Cult. Um which get his documentary from Radio 4, get it where you get your podcast. It's, a, it's thoroughly entertaining. Yeah, I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, what else? What else? What else? No, I don't think so. I think that's it. This has been a very lovely, tight episode of The Two Shot, and it's great to be back. It really is. Right, I bet get to work and sort another episode out for next week. Okay, let's get back on the TSP train. You got your tickets? Good. Let's go. I don't know what I'm talking about. The sun is making me delirious. Until next time, I've been Craig Parkinson, he's been producer Griff, and this has been the Two Shot Podcast. You take care of yourself. Loads of love. Bye. The Two Shot Podcast was presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. The remix of our theme tune is by Stolen Valor. Cheers.